Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is World ArcFest. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My great pleasure to welcome uh, Patrick Schumacher from Zaha Hadid Architects to the stage uh, with Jeremy Melvin, who's going to chair this evening. Over to you. Thank you. Well, we're delighted and honored to have uh, uh, Patrick as the keynote speaker for this second day. Uh, I'm sure Patrick needs no real introduction to you, but I, it's always, I think, rather flat to say that at the beginning of something. Uh, Patrick is a phenomenal uh, driving force who, with uh, the very sadly late Zaha Hadid, built up Zaha Hadid Architects into not just a place of innovative thinking, of a huge amount of talented people working together uh, and some very, very great buildings and designs, um, but also a centre for creative and innovative thought. And Patrick today is going to talk about some of the ideas that they've developed in research programmes as well as practical uh, applications in jobs of uh, ideas about housing. Patrick. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, I'm never talked about housing before and it's not one of our primary arenas of research but we are of course doing all the program elements of the city are part of our repertoire and we have a number of residential projects I want to show and then I want to move on to a discussion of what political issues and controversies surrounding what has been talked about as the housing crisis and make some proposals, some thesis and preliminary demands how I would see, seek to address these issues. And at that point, um, we're going to have a conversation, but also I suggested that we open it up to the floor because some of the proposals or positions I'm offering might be uh, calling for a response, and I'm not anyway keen to see a response here. So I think I'm going to talk about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we have an interaction, maybe a triangle between us and the audience. So, uh, yeah, housing for everyone. So we're doing social housing. We've done social housing, and we're doing luxury residential of the most uh, extreme order. And I think... This includes, therefore, everybody in terms of income classes and also across the regions of the world we are active. I want to briefly show a project we're having on site in Manhattan, in Chelsea, the art district, uh, with the company of Related, and one of our tasks was here to work with this kind of quite amorphous lump you get as the precise volume you have to fit the project into, and one of our tasks was is to forge a unity and give identity and character to such a um, yeah, disarticulate amorphous lump. And there's a number of other moves. There was a shift in uh, levels surrounding the project, which we absorbed in this kind of chevron feature. The scissor section became a major feature, and the L shape and the various step backs 
we managed to create some kind of figure, uh, which also addresses the High Line, and the step backs became a play of balconies, uh, which give, uh, address this primary uh, zone. What was also interesting for us and new to us, that currently we are all challenged as architects, particularly in the residential domain, that we are nearly becoming envelope designers and then and so-called specialist interior designers hired for the inside of the building, and we've been resisting that, and to manage this, we, founded a, we opened our own interior design department, and we've been fighting for maintaining control of the interiors because we think architecture is a, a complete experience from the exterior approach, recognition, and then moving into a coherent experience through all the interior spaces. This is on site, and the execution uh, matches the rendering. is very important for us to manage. And here you can see the kind of key feature which defines the, the building and how we managing uh, this level of refinement and compl geometric complexity through our digital tools. So this is the interior design. There's a, this is a, an urban nugget of high luxury living which draws in an audience into the and let's say the uh, Chelsea area, which usually would be at the upper uh, west side or east side. And there's an, a lot of uh, amenities and, and shared spaces, facility spaces, which we've allocated. And we've been designing those. Outdoor spaces, garden spaces, pool zones, uh, dining halls, function rooms, etc. And then we moved on to the through all the corridors and public spaces into the uh, interior spaces. And what we're finding here is that to, to imprint and recognize the character of the exterior volume, we organize the inside around um, glossy, high precisely, pre precisely articulated nugget, which contains a lot of secondary spaces, and then unfolded more ordinary and simple uh, rooms around that central nugget, and the, the kitchen block was also special, uh, but leaving a lot of uh, more neutral and generic wall spaces around, and then at the other hand, let the exterior imprint to give character again. But you can see that the, these kind of volumes and which organize the interior are in a sense a representation of the exterior on the interior, these kind of L-shaped glossy blocks. This was a showroom we, we, we opened in, in, in Chelsea, and, and the special kitchen as another element of signature recognition, let's say. And here you can see how the, how the exterior facade imprints onto the, and gives character to the interior. We've been uh, experimenting with various ver versions of bathrooms, etc., and we're on the kind of learning curve of developing an interior design sensibility. Now, in terms of the, the price point of these, they range from 4 million to 50 million in terms of various sizes of apartments, the top end being 50 million, and an overall of 39 um, apartments. And for that developer-related, it's the most luxurious that they've ever gone with their product. Here you can see, again, the, the, the penthouse the center, across three levels with various outdoor spaces. That would be the kind of a 50 million uh, uh, proposition. And we're quite proud that we're managing to generate that much value out of a site which was kind of rugged and, and 
and semi-utilized. But that's a process which is moving on in, in many central locations and cities. So we, we went originally, we pushed, tried to push a bit harder with the particularness of the interiors. These are sketches which we had to kind of, then where we wanted to address all rooms, all surfaces, all elements under kind of unique formalism. And we pulled back a little bit from that and, and settled for this kind of more central nugget piece which, which leaves more free play for the, for the other spaces. So this is also what we had to kind of and, and pushing an intentionality and, and, and navigating uh, um, client responses and, and ending up with something we still love and is still fascinating. So there's some of the statistics which, which surround that, uh, that project. We are simultaneously on-site under construction, high-end luxury in, in Miami on Biscayne Boulevard. And again, it's the, we are pushing the value proposition far beyond what has been ever established and achieved on that side of Miami, and we're bringing South Beach prices uh, to Biscayne Boulevard. And we're using the skeleton and the very new technology to build that, to express also the, 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 the diversity of products from three apartments per floor to two apartments per floor to one apartment per floor, a series of penthouses and amenity spaces on site to be delivered. And just to show that in terms of the range of residential products, uh, seven towers of, uh, let's say, standard, modest, luxury, 100, around 100 square meter piece in, in Singapore. I think 1,500 units uh, in a cluster of towers with amenities, as well as uh, 900 units in the center of Milan. Very, very well selling high-end product, but construction cost-wise, uh, surprisingly economical with a 1,200 euro per square meter final build. And an attempt to articulate the, the shared, the common, the private courtyards in timber with a softness and to the exterior uh, a more of a metal, metal facade. Projects at the moment in the office, uh, mixed use uh, luxury residential with hotel and service departments in uh, KL. And here is this kind of world of shared amenities suspended where one in that in-between zone between the hotel and the, and therefore shared between apartments and hotel. A kind of dramatic section. A small, beautiful sliver building in proposition on Copacabana in Rio de Janeiro. Studies and propositions for Malta for London, various uh, mixed-use propositions. And uh, just want to click through something. We have a very, very small-scale intervention in Knightsbridge in a small gated muse at the end of that muse and an attempt to do something contemporary. This is what is the building was like when we took it on. And then we're studying a new kind of way of making it transparent, porous, a new way of handling brick with the robot. Uh, gutting it out with the courtyard, with the, with the green in garden, is, if you like. And just click through this uh, intervention. That's the way you would look at, and at that new facade where, where there's a kind of robotically placed brick and then a fritted, printed bricks creating a kind of screened relationship to the, to the street space where the, main, the only exterior facade lies. The idea of a major uh, green garden. And I was clicking through some of those 
uh, spaces starting with minus one, going up to, uh, to, to ground level, uh, where a, a car had to be un incorporated. And again, warming up with various uh, intricate design features of, uh, which, which, which really bring home our capacity to do furniture, uh, products, uh, and, and redivide the, the space uh, very differently with the glass floor and exterior space. And the top floor with the special skylighted wardrobe and the bedroom. A special staircase. Cast in fiber concrete. Installed, it actually was so intricate, the geometry that we had to actually kind of a roll to molded casting to get the, the concrete and all the intricate relief points of the, of the staircase. So this is on site, a lot of fair face concrete ceilings that wardrobe skylight. And the, and the facade. This is interesting. It's a sash window. but something we all know from England, where you have the one half of the window moving up. But except we're doing this across two levels, so that sash window piece is the whole floor moving up and down. So, this is just a bit of a glimpse of what we're doing, uh, all the way from social housing to various forms of luxury or various gradations in various contexts, out in big complexes or in little silver in, in incisions. And we're very happy, we're proud of all these interventions. I, that's what I call housing for everyone. And uh, for me, this is a market-based urban provision, what I want to push, and I want to make a few arguments um, about city like London. Similar arguments might be happening in Berlin, but they're certainly happening in New York and other cities. So for me, housing for everyone, well, it is, there is a question mark. And first of all, my thesis one is that housing for everyone, for everyone can only be provided by freely self-regulating and self-motivating market process. That's thesis one, and I have, will present seven theses, and at the end I will present seven demands. Because I was once on this nice uh, panel where we were imagining what would I do if I became London mayor, and we were asked to do a kind of manifesto proposition. I was in the audience, and I saw ten uh, left-wing theorists making propositions for the mayor. And I will ha I'm inspired to imagine myself to be in such a position. And <clears throat> but most probably my idea would be to hand over to the market, mostly. <laughs> so the meta-thesis behind this is that if the market rules, then we have profitable, profitability as a criterion, profit and loss system, uh, selecting out and weeding out uh, and leading to the livable, that my, my meta-thesis. But we do not have a real market in real estate provision. That's why we have a housing crisis. 
but we don't have a food crisis or oil crisis or car crisis or textile crisis because there we have the market working for us. In housing, we're not allowing the market to work. That's why we're having, in my view, a housing crisis. And that's all over the media and it's a big thing. And uh, the new minister for the built environment and housing is having ideas about this. And I find some of the ideas actually quite interesting and we'll come to that. But that housing crisis is also all over in all those arenas actually where we see those massive shift back into urban concentration which we all know and participate in. We see it in America, we see it in San Francisco, we see it in New York, we're seeing it all over the place, in London in particular, and we all feel it on our bones that we have to move to the center, we have to pull together because that's the way we're productive in what I call the post-forest network society. So, but it seems that we're not, prices are rising so sky high that there is a so-called housing gap. So Jeremy Coben says, um, talks about 100,000 units per annum missing. That there would be a demand for these 100,000, but we actually don't, we only, for 200,000, we're only building 100,000. Well, we have to ask a little bit what that means, because obviously we don't have increasing homelessness, and we have these 100,000 are still living somewhere. Uh, we have basically... Uh, projected households, and then we have built apartments, and then you realize in the end that uh, there's several households living in one, in one apartment unit. So what really is behind this is not is an affordability crisis, perhaps, and that looks like this, that more and more of our income goes to the provision of our residence, our, uh, our um, homes. And uh, this has been growing and I think partly we have to expect that if there is so much change and we all want to pull together and move together closely in a high density urban environment, that, that change itself might rise prices because there's a time lag. But on the other hand, one can all, there are statistics that argue that spreading out is actually more capital intensive and expensive than pulling together. So if we're pulling together more and more, in theory, it should be, relatively speaking, cheaper to live. So it should be a, there should be a saving, and we should, in the final analysis, see falling prices. With this kind of diagram, and I think this diagram is real and will not go away, and we all feel it, that we have to be very, very central to stay connected 24-7, and we can't afford to be kind of pull the, pulling away and be disconnected and unproductive in the provinces, but that is an interesting debate. Physically speaking, wouldn't that be cheaper? Instead of all these roads and, and infrastructure lines and piping all the way out, and we had an interesting discussion, for instance, uh, in terms of infrastructure provision, if you have small urban water clearance plants, most of the, of the investment in, for instance, such water clearance plants goes into the piping out into miles out. The same happens in America, where you have this polarization and everyone wants to move into the centers. There must be, that's the hypothesis here, severe supply restrictions. And they're not only because there's not enough land, because we can, I think, multiply the density in, in many, many parts of central London. 
And I have evidence of that, direct evidence for developers. For instance, at the big elephant park project, where we have an eraser of an old housing estate complex, with the provision that density is being now doubled. And in a conversation, I challenged the developer, and he said he could have easily tripled or even quadrupled. But there was just the kind of government cap, doubling is enough. And of course, this kind of project was politically resisted at the same time. And there are many other supply restrictions coming through planning and, and, and position of standards, etc. I want to talk about. But the affordability crisis is in many, many centers around the world. And if I look at the way these issues are commented and discussed in the media, I'm a bit kind of worried that there's a lot of false avenues of reflection going around, particularly in The Guardian, um, where there is the, the crisis is attributed not to government restrictions on development, but to kind of the market going rampant with selling to luxury apartments to foreigners who don't live in them and therefore calling for more government to, to come in and, and solve the crisis. And there's a lot of these kind of features and, and as if that was uh, more than just the, the tiniest proportion of, of apartments where you have foreigners supposedly, these kind of characters, being made responsible for the housing crisis. And that needs to be stopped and intervened with. I, by the way, know, of course, quite a few uh, people who have second homes in London, and I'm so glad they do because they're global multiplier entrepreneurs with huge networks. They all choose London as their second home, and I'm happy that we have the Bloombergs and the Sangshings and the Mittals uh, joining our city. Even if they're here only for a few weeks and have some kind of key, throw some key parties, that's, these are amazing multiplying events. So I'm very, very happy that that is taking place in our city. And I'm very much critical of these kind of anti-capitalist spin and biases, which, which I think I want to challenge as being irrelevant and, and a distraction and basically shooting in the wrong direction. So here the mayor is saying that he um, wants to inquire about those foreign property ownerships. Um, yeah, growing fears about the scale of gentrification and rising housing costs, real concerns about the surge in numbers of homes being bought by overseas investors. Now, and this is, then there's a kind of fear-mongering, imagine now that all this Chinese middle class is pouring in their money and buying all of London and maybe not using those, uh, and making these apartments empty safety, safe deposit boxes. Now, I would say this, my answer to this is that thesis too, foreign investment capital coming into town should and would be great news in any free market society. Let them pour their investments here if they trust that this is something which is worthwhile. But if some of those investments are kept empty, then we should suspect restrictive tenancy rules. And I think we have incredibly restrictive tenancy rules to be a barrier that should be lifted if these are empty. Imagine you buy a huge asset and you just sit them empty without allowing that asset to produce revenue. There might be reasons for that which need to be addressed. But anyway, let the capital flow in to solve the housing crisis, to build new stock. It's not going to be taking away. 
Well, I think in terms of the Guardian, again, there is, there is a different perspective on things. And uh, I partially agree with some of the notions which, which are criticized by Oliver Weinreich, um, that we have a system in which there is planners have a lot of leeway to negotiate terms one by one, project by project. There are no strict rules. It's incredibly disconcerting and worrisome to developers. Puts a lot of uncertainty in the mix and uh, generates a kind of endless cycles of negotiation and haggling, by the way. But that's what investors competing on on gaming and pokering with the, with the developers. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very critical of that fact. So I'm overlapping partially with Oliver Reinhardt on this, the grand haggle, and that's been observed, this is from another article of The Guardian, and I find that problematic. And you can see here in the last sentence that the developers rather have a fixed, clear guideline and go on with this than being exposed to this kind of poker game with the, with, the, with the counselors, and we experience this right now, and you're going months after months after months in, around in cycles. So thesis three for me is this. Developers cannot compete with local, location-specific creative entrepreneurial offerings towards urban life, as all product dimensions are rigidly prescribed by standards and planners. That's one huge problem. Thus, developers compete solely in terms of gaming the planners, of getting special exemptions, pushing down the affordable requirement, etc., etc. That's what developers compete on. What they should be competing on is where, how much, of what type, with what facilities and sizes and mix and audiences addressing. All that is fixed by the political process. And that is, I think, a deep, deep cause of the housing crisis also, because we keep producing the wrong kind of uh, offering, and we certainly produce not enough offering. So urban development is now private, as we know, but only in the sense that there is no direct public development and all development action is left to private initiative. However, the key decisions that should be entrepreneurial decisions are fixed politically. So the land use allocation, the program mix required, whether you can put residential, retail, offices, what type of offices, hotel, culture, that's all determined by bureaucrats. And nobody knows on what basis, with what rationality. They just fix that somehow. The quantum of development, with all these subparts and the overall quantum and density, is fixed by bureaucrats. If housing is allowed at all, then we have the unit mix prescribed by the borrower exactly how many four-bedroom, three-bedroom, two-bedroom, one-bedroom, in exact proportions, elephant park, the whole thing is prefixed. So what's the developer going to do? Unit sizes and of each of these types is fixed with a maximum. And they're all too large, by the way. The maximum number of units per core is fixed. Each room size is fixed. The facilities which have to be there are fixed. And balconies and how many to be. So it is an absolute absurdity. And once I mentioned that at the... London Property Forum, I got an outpouring from all the colleagues and developers of the irrational absurdity they all shut up and swallow because they're dependent on the developers within their poker game. And you have the pretense of land use planning 
where the whole point is that the, only the market can discover the synergies, the co-locational synergies and relevancies of various things tying together into an urban network, which is totally blocked by planners, which shows up in radical, up to fourfold land value differentials along such programmatic lines which is an absurdity, a rational and market-driven process would equalize all land parcels in the same location irrespective, irrespectively. And you wouldn't have a four-fold increase suddenly because you have planning permission for residential. That shows how long and far that irrationality had allowed to build up to have a totally sub-optimal land provision. And now as they're coming in and allowed a conversion, and now you have suddenly a huge windfall for those who were lucky, who were sitting on an office, who purchased an office, and suddenly they get huge windfalls. That's irrationally. So the whole economic rationality is out of the window, and, and the whole process becomes a gamble. And again, there's a texture in London where he, all historically established land use pattern are just frozen. And the city has to live with that uh, corset. And it's totally irrational. And the planners? pretending that they're actually planning the city. Nobody has planned that. Nobody intended that, wanted that. That's anyway an outcome. So on the level of an urban uh, um, curation of an urban identity or, or um, uh, image, that we're hopeless anyway. I do like, in fact, the example of the great estates where you had a form of private planning and curation of an overall district value proposition. And that's the way the London we love has actually been developed. But in the 20th century, this was systematically cut, dismantled, and forced to sell, and then planning authorities took over. Uh, where, but here, what I find here important, that you have an expert planning group of managing assets for the sake of everybody. For, for value maximization, and value maximization means livability maximization, means, means uh, we, we're getting the most use and utilization out of an urban environment. And that shows then up a part of that gift to society returns as a profit margin and rewards those who've gifted to do more and, and get more money under the wing to do more. So that's my uh, understanding of money as a certificate of service and profit as a signal of doing well for everybody. So for me, it's important, again, to look at these interventions in trying to freeze and fix and prevent, basically, that value teasing, that value creation, that value discovery, which only the market can deliver. So thesis for all top-down bureaucratic attempts to order the built environment via land use plans are pragmatically and intellectually bankrupt, only an unrestrained market process can be agile and adaptive enough to discover and realize co-location synergies and continue to deliver land and real estate resources to their most productive and most desired uses. Market processes deliver land and real estate resources to their most profitable uses. They establish a viable programmatic order, whereas these kind of arbitrary rifts where commercial has to stop or residential can't mix in, prevents that programmatic life process order. So if you look at the housing guides, 
there you find all what they're doing. They have the mix they want to talk about and mix of tenure and, and who is to be. They want a social engineer, they want a program engineer. They want to talk about circulation, they want to talk about the car parks. They have standards I've talked about for every type of dwelling. They actually have little diagrams which you kind of basically plug in. So they're doing the architect's work also already. There's really nothing left to do for anybody except for negotiating the terms for the planners where they don't have to stick to. So you can see what they're saying for dwelling sizes, for every type of house, and um, all the equipment and their various sizes and, and aspects. Daylight, sunlight, ceiling heights, privacy requirements. Let me decide, look at the product and see if it's private enough or I want to be less private or more, more public, more integrated. No, we are kind of all nanny uh, stated and nanny kind of infantilized by planners who pretending to know what's good for us. I know there's a subtext which has to do a lot with social housing giveaways, which kind of, when you give away, you have to kind of equally give away, and that feeds back across everything. So thesis five, housing standards are mythical or real even, perhaps, average or majority set of preferences that have been bureaucratic fixed and imposed on all of us, robbing us of many choices and yet to be discovered choices if we want entrepreneurs to, to find out what we might like, to tailor our spending to our personal satisfaction and needs. And if that's taking place, we are all poorer for it because we're wasting most of our income on the things we, we, don't, we didn't want and wouldn't have purchased if, if there was a market offering. I think that's very important. Even if, there, if it is the majorities view, which I doubt, why should be an average or a majority dictate the other half of society what to consume? You know, that we have only a certain car, size of car or a certain burger on the menu. So one fits all prescription backed by police force, and that's for me the, where, the, where we have to remember what political power means, that in the end it's the power of the police to shut down, clamp down, and push you out. And I say, let's get rid of that. And I think that, the, curiously, the housing minister has the right idea here. I mean, sometimes they hit on something. Overall, ideologically, they, they have a lot of fallacies in their government uh, thinking. But here we got something. I agree with them. So I'm not sort of on the radical fringe with all I'm saying. I'm actually government policy. The housing minister's big idea to scrap minimum space standards. But the way this is presented in the independent and other media is as a kind of ludicrous and an absurd violation, cutting corner. There's this kind of gut sense of a liberal lefty to defend standards as if it was a kind of um, um, the holy grail. When we all want to move together and be close to each other, the same is in the office space, actually, where we have to give health and safety kind of huge distances between people. They literally can no longer collaborate. We want to sit people closer. You can see what he and he and he is doing and turn around what he is doing. That's against health and safety standards. We are totally healthy in our office space. We can seat our people the way they would collaborate. And that needs to be all challenged and um, wiped off our, uh, the barriers and fetters have to be exploded. And there are entrepreneurs who are coming out who are challenging this and working on this. I loved, yesterday I had a meeting with this guy, one of the guys from Pocket, Pocket Living, and they have kind of challenged these kind of 
large minimum sizes of 50 square meters for a single bedroom flat. And they've pushed it down to 37 by renaming a studio into single occupancy and then they be two become equal because studios at the sofa were, had to be 37 square meter. I just have a colleague who moved into a beautiful 20 square meter apartment at the Barbican is super happy, something we're no longer allowing ourselves to be built. So somebody has to either move 10 kilometers out or wait another 10 years before he can live by themselves. Instead, most of our staff are still stuck in uh, flat shares because these guys, the bureaucrats, think it's denigrating to have an apartment and a, 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 a single studio or a single occupancy party below 50 square meter. But these guys are really clever and really smart, and they also got rid of an exemption for the unit mix. They're doing whole buildings only with this product, because that's what's really running. And they're like 50 times oversubscribed with their product. And forget all this four-bedroom, three-bedroom, four-bedroom, five-bedroom, which in the end, when they're built, they're going to be flat shares anyway. So what this ties in with also is nicely this idea of modular building. So this, they can really deliver much cheaper. And that's something a friend of mine in Korea is also delivering. These, these apartments here are 12 square meter. And it's incredibly popular and livable. And you have your little villa in the sky with 12 square meter, a number of shared uh, spaces. And the collective, where I've been visiting, and this entrepreneur is uh, 27 year old, and it's a super... Uh, um, successful product and process, they're going down with 10 square meter and lots and lots of shared space, free workspace, uh, um, gyms, and look, they had to go through a loophole. This is a multi-occupancy, a kind of flat share with 500 people sharing a house because they're sharing a living room and have individualized bedrooms. But these are autonomous apartment where you can have your own shower, your little kitchenette, and you can close the door, and you have more the privacy you want at one point, and then you have a lot of sharing on the other point. This is only possible by some kind of a loophole manipulation of a shared occupancy um, condition. And this is going away like a, you know, like a hot potato. They have, they have, they have projects now in Stratford's coming and in... in Canary Wharf and four central sites in London, and we want to work with them, and it's fascinating. And they're only relying on the loophole at the moment. So this is what the way they advertise. Um, they're also doing a new product because they're combining this with inspirational talk, networking, film screenings. I know another young developer who is doing incubator homes, where you where you where you have basically um, workspaces and uh, startup company incubation uh, tied in with, with residential. So this is the kind of entrepreneurial flourishing, which I love, like Airbnb style operations on top of that to recoup some of the money in a very mobile society. And there's some university projects. I mean, the Biennale at and the London uh, contribution to the Venice Biennale had um, this topic presented with, with Pierre Vittorio and, and uh, he did in Yale a project where you actually speculated with taking out any private space in a collective living scenario. I mean, I think these are fascinating. This is at the moment utterly illegal. In the US it's also, for instance, illegal for in terms of shared living. There are barriers. If you're more than seven people who are not related, you can't allow, you're not allowed to live together. So there's lots of this going on. 
maybe very old protection against kind of slum landlording, etc. Right. So I want to say that there is a lot of resistance against some of these projects because the neighbors maybe don't like these younger and, 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 and maybe less affluent people to move in. And we had this wonderful initiative of the, where you can now, and the government has pushed it through, and again, I'm on the side of government, that you can push through a conversion of office into residential. And interestingly enough, at that point, there was no standard restrictions at all imposed. You could do any sizes, any number of apartments. Of all, there were no mix restrictions, no size restrictions on these conversions. And that showed a lot up, what, what really is wanted, because at that point you had a lot of 20 square meter studios at, on, at offer in central locations. So I think the market discovers what's wanted. And here again, this is this project where I said, they doubled density and they could have tripled or quadrupled density, but it is massively resisted out of political reasons. There's also this idea of land hoarders. There's a lot of blame and discussion which looks at developers as the, the evil force. But I think the developers are, are doing their best in a totally constrained system, a totally rigged system, and they don't have the police power behind them. That's always the government. And I think also the ownership discussion is misplaced. There's a lot of pushing of ownership as the solution. I think ownership demobilizes, it's a, and it's, 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 it's over-subsidized. And you have, again, the left liberal press coming in and crying crisis if people can't own a home at a certain age, as if there was a kind of total breakdown of society attached to this, and that these homes would have to be kind of sponsored, given away, or... And uh, I'm against help to buy, because it again kind of pushes people into ownership, which they shouldn't have as a priority, and it demobilizes them, and it also artificially pushes prices. And again, you have this backlash against the so-called so social cleansing, and we have demonstration out of the RIBA, we have the Guardian pushing this, we have Corbyn using that phrase. <laughs> this is a demonstration we had outside the, uh, 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 the RBA during the uh, sterling price. And we can discuss that. And I find it problematic to, to, to use a phrase like social cleansing, which alludes to kind of genocidal, genocidal ethnic cleansing, when socially renting tenants are asked to move and offered a new place somewhere else. They're given these houses for free, and now they're getting another new for free, and what a tragedy for them. I mean, the fact that somebody has enjoyed the privilege of a subsidized central location for some time, in my view, does not and should not establish ownership over this public resource. Is it not fair that now it's somebody else's turn to enjoy the central location, especially if it is those who really need it to be productive and to be better to able and, and produce the support required for those who have been subsidized all along and will continue to be subsidized. And I'm thinking about my people who are working very hard and generating value, having to commute or having flat shares, where these spaces are left to people who are, you know, free riding on, 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 on and backed by police force for the last, for, for, for decades hence and supposedly for decades to come. So, uh, for me, that's my thesis six. 
central lo London locations are a precious productive resource that for the sake of total social production and prosperity should perhaps be allocated according to market principles, that is, to the uses most urgently demanded by the economically most potent and thus most productive users who serve us most effectively. And that would be in a real market that, like this. We, don't li we live in a, a kind of compromised market, so I know that a lot of those high earners in the financial sector don't really deserve this because it's all based on bailouts and privileges, government granted, but I'm talking a market theoretical position. So we have to also wipe out that corporate welfare and, 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 and subsidizing of the financial sector. Gentrification, in principle, is urban progress. I know it has a paradoxical logic that we all want to move into these nice, rugged and, and, and romantic, nostalgic neighborhoods that we kind of shift the quality of that, but that's life, right? You would love to be the only tourist on an island, but then again, others want to enjoy that too, and by that very act, you transform it. I understand the paradox, but gentrification is nevertheless a progressive process, and you can pull away and be the, move into the next um, arena if, 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 if you don't like it, but don't kind of call, go there up to a certain point and then call the government and the police to stop that process after you've arrived and call for milieu protection. So, I'm nearly there, and I have put together seven demands out of these thesis. That's my urban policy manifesto. Seven demands to solve the housing crisis, and that's the proposition. First of all, regulate the planners. Development rights must be the starting point. Then tightly define and circumscribe the planner's scope and legitimate reasons for constraining development rights, not the other way around. Only certain inevitable things to do with the, kind of the, the collective aspect of an urban together, they should have the right to interfere. Nothing else can be brought to bear. No social engineering agenda, please. Abolish all land use prescriptions. We've had that. Stop all vain and unproductive attempts at milieu protection. Abolish all prescriptive housing standards. Abolish all forms of social and affordable housing, and that's a tough one for maybe for some of you to swallow. So I'm saying no more imposition of quotas of various types of affordable housing. Phase out and private house council housing. Phase out housing benefit system also, and substitute with monetary support without specific purpose allocation, because all these subsidies means that look at the top line, we have to stop these intervention distortions because they all imply oversupply and waste of the resource. Because you actually don't competitively bid or really use your own money to purchase. What you get for free, you always go for and oversubscribe. So demand six is also abolish all government subsidies for home ownership like help to buy. Abolish all forms of rent control and one fits all regulation of tenancy tenancies, because that prevents a lot of stock to be coming online for renting. There's a lot of hesitancy and problem. So I think instead we should have a totally free contracting of tenancy terms so that a thousand flowers could bloom. Now, here's one more, and then I stop. A recipe that I believe, all of what I said, plus this one here, for the creation of a dense urban fabric that delivers a stimulating urbanity Many of us desire 
and know to be the key condition for further productivity gains within our post-forest network society where we know we have to network all the time with each other. And my demand here, or proposition is, privatize all streets, squares, public squares, parks, possibly whole urban districts, a bit like the great estates, and even Hyde Park. I mean, there's historic preservation. I'm not going to be against that in principle, but imagine that we can 80% of Hyde Park built a new city within the center of London according to a highest bidding value proposition. You can still keep a nice 20%. And I'm asking you, I know a lot of you are Londoners, when were you last in Hyde Park? How much are you actually using it for the benefit? I was there maybe this year. I haven't been there yet. I passed by once and looked at it. We need to know what this costs us what this cost all of us and it was cost residents in Scotland, that we're actually protecting this and preventing this. We need to, and how do we find out that we, what this cost us? When we actually can make a bidding process and see what value we're foregoing and we could, could gain and lower taxes and give all of us more prosperity. So that's the proposition and I hope there's time for, for some pushback. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Patrick. And um, I'm, I'm You've, you've, you've obviously touched a, a very strong nerve. I'm going to ask anyone who has a, uh, a question to stand up, and then one of the students who are in uh, yellow tops will bring a microphone to you. I won't be able to see you if you don't stand up, I'm afraid, because of the way the lights work. But while you're thinking of questions, Patrick, uh, I think you've, you've, you've really touched on something, which is that there's a whole series of vested interests from bureaucratic organisations, from politicians of the left and the right, equally to blame, uh, that has actually... Uh, completely uh, made the housing provision, certainly in the UK, completely sclerotic. And it, 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 it is not working for all sorts yeah. of reasons, uh, which are probably no more one side politically than, than, than the other. Um, one is protective of land values, the other is protective of, of so-called yeah, users. Exactly. Uh, and we need to rethink that completely. But what I find interesting is that I wouldn't have had to change very much to make that quite a Marxist track. <laughs> you know, uh, take away your comments about the, the free market can, can provide this right at the beginning. Maybe, uh, you know, much of your thinking could go back to, and I'm not talking about the Soviet Union or the, or the DDR, but I'm talking about early Marxist ideas about how society could be reconstituted. Well, you might, have, you might know that I have been a Marxist for many, for many, for many years and that there's, there's a lot of continuities, but also there's a, there's a censura and a and, and shift. But what I got from Marx, of course, the focus that pr what, what, what all life processes participate in is the material reproduction and that we have to worry about most is productivity gains. So to develop prosperity and freedom, that we make ourselves free from the juddery and bone-breaking harshness of working and ens enslaving us to, to, to nature. So that's underlying this. So I'm, I'm coming from an economic point of view, and Marx's political philosophy was economics-based and econom political economy-based, and that's where the continuity comes in. And the other notion is, of course, that idea of, of, of freedom and self-realization, which Marx wanted to discuss, and this in the highest stage of communism, we had actually the withering away of the state. 
And that's another kind of strange convergence point, an inflection point, where I see we need to roll back the state and we need to start working on the withering away of the state because as a society in a contemporary global condition, we are mature enough. We don't need to be infantilized. We have this incredible telecommunication network and the internet with so many advice and, and, and inf information and empowerment and so many of our labors are anyway no longer physical. And, and, and so, so I think that withering of the way should start now. And that's a very, very strong Marxist position. So I agree with you on that aspect. But there are also very, very strong differences, yes. well, which were more obvious than the, than the continuities. Does anyone have a question? Please, please, please feel free. Lady Yeah. yeah. Sorry, there. Sorry. Yeah, we were talking about like innovation and these issues that you know socially we're facing, and I just it really struck me when we saw that SSD project up there with Jeannie Parks. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm. It's hard for me to fathom that by just destroying all the rules, that it opens up the process of innovation and pushing, you know, bending the rules to push innovation for these housing issues. And for me, I just think sometimes by the rules that have been established for safety and for other reasons, if we got rid of that, that would have complacency for developers who aren't pushing this innovation. Well, I think what, if you look at the discussion of standards, I mean, Ginny's project simply is not possible in London, nor is it possible in New York. It's simply forbidden and rejected by force of police. And I like that emphasis because that's what it comes down to in the final analysis. <clears throat> you simply can't do it. That means that whole universe of exploration is shut out. And you saw the way they started, particularly if you think about that the market drivers for smaller units. And then there's kind of ceiling. All search would be down here in the smaller units and this is all blocked. So that you, but, but it's not only the size, it's the unit mix, it's the, the staircases, the balconies, the facilities, I've told you. And architects are getting very frustrated because all they can do is kind of shift a little bit the blocks and, and, and choose between brick and, and uh, brick type A and brick type B because the planners also have voices there. They want to have a certain local uh, stylistic uh, flavor also imposed. So you can't allow a semiological process, which I'm also very interested in. The self-expression of urban identities and make the city speak, that's all prevented because we're all mum, uh, kind of uh, uh, mulled by, by planners speaking on our behalf. So I, I think uh, for me it's very, very clear uh, that these barriers have to go and then we can Five years later, ten years later, we can discuss whether innovation has flourished or it was a false hope. But at the moment, we can't even discuss it. Okay. There is no innovation and there can't be. One of the things that I think is, 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 is very strong um, in, in many uh, cities in the developed world uh, are these uh, impositions of regulations that absolutely prevent things. You, you, yeah. you know, they specify you have to have two bedrooms or four bedrooms or whatever. And I, I think that, that, that one, of the, one of the things I wonder about here is what you're doing, in a sense, is making a plea for architectural skill to be the underlying. No, I, and I mean architecture in a broad sense. Architectural skill, but also entrepreneurial skill. Because mm. what's the entrepreneur supposed to do here? He starts... The, the entrepreneur, the client, the developer starts the process, and it could be also 
Anybody here who has entrepreneurial flavor, and a lot of people started from nothing, going around in the city and seeing an old warehouse, seeing a corner and say, hey, I have an idea. That could be a great club, that could be a bar, that could be a, or a certain type of house for, you know, that we can, you could, that, you know, that is something which is intuitive, creative, imaginative, teasing out the synergy potential of the city on every location specifically. And that can't be from a, from a, from a bureaucratic table fixed 15 years ago with a land use plan. That's an entrepreneurial task for the programmatic calibration of the product. And then we come in and interface and be inventive about how most to make out of these, uh, the, translate into space and form an adjacency relationship, that idea of a life process, the idea of a, let's say, synergetic community which comes from the developer is then tied up with an architectural imagination and together we, should, we could recreate the city I think in beautiful ways and there are examples of that when you have loopholes or exemptions or um, zones which accidentally are out of the purview of, of, mm. of the all present state there sometimes are these pockets which allow for things to flourish and then these are very important clues and, and uh, yeah. th th this, this will be terrifying to the sort of urban planning and building regulation community, which I think is no bad thing, because um, they've got to a point where they're not just regulators of what of actual building production, but they're regulators of regulators and regulators of regulators of regulators. Yeah, and, and getting rid of that, which is incredibly expensive, and it diverts resources from this sort of entrepreneurial intent and urge and the application of design skills to deliver there's it. there's also this, you know, politically it's going the wrong direction on many levels. There are some glimpses where they've hit something new, but for instance, in terms of the standards, there were a few years ago where they borrow wide standards, so the borrow set the standards, and the GLA came in and unified mm. it all. Two years no. later, it's, now it's a national standard. Okay, we've got a question there, a lady in the third row and then a gentleman in a, in a uh, pink shirt behind. Hello, uh, thank you for a provocative uh, discussion and presentation. Uh, would you say that there is no value in economic diversity in urban centers? Um, it, it's the, the messaging that I'm hearing. Uh, no, I think that my view of it it, 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 the market would deliver far more diversity than we have now. Because what we have now is this kind of pushing of most of the product, all new build now, supposedly 50% to that always that kind of golden middle income affordable group which is catered for and it's always the same kind of group mostly also catered for public sector workers. It's just, I think it's very, very biased and, and, and not allowing, uh, through the standard imposition in particular, younger people to come in, uh, all sorts of forms of life to flourish, and then, but also on the, on the higher income scales, they're preventing larger flats. And I, think for, and I think these kind of key global entrepreneurs who want to be in London why, what do they need the flat for? These are networking events, these are uh, parties and social integration and very productive things. They're also being at least attacked, politically attacked. So everything should be this kind of nice middle class layer and everything else I feel is getting excluded. In my world, 
is the, the full diversity of, of uh, life styles and processes, temporary and permanent, uh, and all sorts of income brackets which reflect different life choices and skills and, and the world division of labor should be in the city. And yeah, I think that this that there is an entrepreneurial task to bring in um, this diversity. I think this is a very incomplete thesis. I think number 10 should be that you should privatise oxygen because I'm sure there are some people who are inhaling oxygen and aren't creating the best economic outcome from it. I was in Hyde Park a couple of days ago and I met some very nice trees. And I think once you, once you start privatising the, the vegetation the open spaces, the, the space in which the public moves, then I think you have a world that isn't, um, isn't human and where livability has, has taken a dive. I know we're, in, we're meant to be a world architecture festival and we're in Berlin and we seem to be tied up with this notion that London uh, housing codes are the most bureaucratic in the world and, and I'm, I agree with you and I think there's a lot to be said against the codes. But I think... Uh, there's a real danger when you start pushing the economic argument to the, to the point at which it's, it's going to uh, classify uh, people's uh, access to the richness of the city according to their economic productivity. And it's at that point that I, I must uh, call a halt to this, uh, to this thesis. Well, this is a proposition which is, which I want to open. I know it's, that was the last point, and it's the harsh, the, let's say, the most provocative and, and extreme position, and there's something I want to brainstorm with everybody here and elsewhere. That's why I expose myself with these kind of thought experiments, let's say. But there are examples one could cite. So if you go, first of all, the idea of um, public space sh should be separated from publicly owned which then needs to be elaborated into, controlled by a bunch of bureaucrats you've never known, seen, nor have you voted for anybody because most people don't participate in municipal elections, and if in any way, it's once every four years. And behind those scenes, that's not owned by everybody. That's a, so that has to be severed, public space and public ownership, and public ownership needs to be demystified. And it's highly problematic. And if you look at a lot of American cities and where the youth are gathering and where they hang out and what they use as public spaces, a lot of it's, in it's privately owned, privately provided. It's the malls, which are more interesting, more stimulating. There's more going on. Uh, they're cleaner and better than, than, than let's say, uh, vast and, 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 and disintegrating public spaces. And anyway, no space is for everybody. So certain subcultures appropriate certain zones in the center of Berlin and then it's for this subculture and not for any other subculture. And it could be done in... Uh, uh, these are all, for me, entrepreneurial potentials and ventures. So that's... And, and private parks sometimes, for instance, there's um, uh, good examples of public... For, of, of parks in America have been privatized and have been much more open and thriving and utilized and it's not about uh, uh, excluding people. This is making, making, making value propositions and having entrepreneurial venturesomeness. 
Because it's, it's, the entrepreneur isn't about excluding. The entrepreneur is about finding um, missing links, missing desires uncatered for, and they could come from all sorts of um, um, uh, strata. And in the end, uh, uh, those who are catering for large audiences, they become, they're often and mostly the, the most profitable ones. And that's often sneered at by the left liberals because they think that, that you know, all these trashy move movies and TV series and all this should not happen. <laughs> so there's, I think, an, another form of uh, uh, anti-populism which I don't subscribe to. I think we've got time for one more question over, over here. But it's, uh, it's if you it brief, one. we might get another one in. But, but. Sure. Thank yeah. you. Um, um, I, I have great empathy for... Um, uh, your position about the standards, the bureaucratic standards, which are truly astonishing and extraordinarily thorough, and uh, I get all that. However, um, I practice in Toronto, and um, we haven't looked at the zoning bylaws for about 15 years. Okay, so that's all gone out the window, and it is very much a free market system. However, that's not a panacea either, because other than a handful, less than a handful of developers, who actually have some aspiration and are entrepreneurial and kind of respond to needs in society, most of them are completely driven by the profit motive. They all want to make their 20% profit. And so what you have as a result is the most dismal, dreadful um, housing you can imagine. And our, for 50 square meters in Toronto, that's a standard two-bedroom unit. Um, so. Sorry, can, can, anyway. uh, we're trying to get other people in. So okay, please, let's, let's yeah. collect a few questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I like your idea about sharing, you know, sharing spaces, because I think uh, to be a resilient city, you have to sh learn to share. But when you start talking about uh, trying to privatize, then you are actually going into exclusivity, where sharing is actually inclusivity. So, um, you know, in, in Asia, we, we try from sharing, but uh, I think having the cities can you, can you to share... Ask you, uh, can you yeah. please ask a question? Okay. The question is, how do you include all levels of economic uh, how shall I say, population so that the city becomes more flavour? Because I think that's the very basic thing where Romans start okay, to thank create you, cities. Thank you. So how okay, you let me come in. It's very important because I think there's an there is a kind of Sunday speech slogan which we need to question. And that question is, this space is for everyone. And that's, you have to mention, everything you do is supposed to be for everybody. This is very, very abstract, right? Because if you look at it in the end, the city has a diversity of places and it is sorting us so that we find each other with respect to relevant and culturally attuned and mutually interested gathering and, and, and social networking partners and communication partners. That's what this whole texture of the city does. It's actually ordering social processes and allowing us to self-sort to find like-minded. Like and I want to make that point very clear. So there's a, 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 um, the idea that the, the spaces are literally for everybody and that you can share something with anybody indiscriminately is, 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 is false. That's, you know, you have, you have clubs, which membership, that's one thing where it makes us very explicit. But there are all sorts of clubs and party rooms and bars where there's a kind of self, 
sorting and self-gathering in different subcultures, and that's absolutely necessary, I think. And that's, that's an entrepreneurial task, and the degree of managing this, I think, is also a task where you can find out what works and what doesn't work, or whether, whether, if, whether you have to, in every gathering, every seminar, every university has to filter out those who disturb, disrupt, and don't fit in. And I think that's, that's very, very naive, this, 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 is, this is for everyone. This isn't even the, true for a public space. And I think another point, private offerings. You know, the, the, I listened to this, 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 this uh, podcast on the American white urban poor and what spaces they use, and McDonald's is the greatest provider for hangout space across middle America for, the, for, for a certain group of, of, of the social stratum. That, that need, these kind of things need to be remembered and they could be, and they are they're happy to, to allow this to happen because it's, that's for them part of their, uh, their, their profit motive. And the profits, and I don't want to come back to this, very important. Profit is not a dirty word. Profit signaling that you actually done well with the resource. And if you run a loss, you actually have wasted resources. Your end product is worth less than the resources and time you've consumed. You've actually destroyed value. That's good for nobody. So if without the profit and loss signaling, you end up oftentimes, and that's why socialist economy is kind of collapsed, and that's why Venezuela is kind of collapsing, because they destroy more value than they generate. Just bring a very quick comment, please, and then we're going to have to wrap up. Just a cheeky final question, Patrick. Um, so I'm standing here. Well, okay. Yeah. Um, personally, I don't think your manifesto went actually quite far enough. I sensed a bit of nice. <laughs> I sensed a bit of conservatism coming into there when you talked about um, heritage, and uh, you, you were a bit kind of nervous about talking about building over Hyde Park. Yes, let's build over it. Let's do that. Um, okay, can you last question. Yeah. What one more thing would you do on your manifesto? What, 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 one more point. One more, what, one more addition would you do one on your point. manifesto? Ooh, well, I actually want to generalize it because I'm, this is only talking about the real estate and built environment. I want to expand the same spirit to all aspects of society. Okay, <laughs> so thank you. Um, just, just before uh, we thank Patrick, I, I'm going to conclude with a very, very brief anecdote. Henry Ford, faced with workers' insurrection and with um, his uh, uh, directors revolting over whether they could agree to raise the wage from $2.50 to $3 a day, just said, you're all wrong. We're going to raise the wage to $5 a day, which meant that every one of his workers could afford one of his products and that every other factory would have to be able to uh, pay its workers that. So he massively increases market. So Patrick, pay your workers enough so they can buy your homes. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>